All right, everybody, we are going to kick things off here with uh, period three, topic four. We are finishing up period three. We're going to be talking about the 1790s, and in doing so, we're going to learn how President's Day and the 4th of July, two big American holidays, really started off as uh, partisan holidays. So the 1790s, a couple things I want you to think about before we dive into the notes here, is that except for the Civil War, the last several years of the 18th century, 1700s, were perhaps some of the most politically contentious years in U.S. history. Uh, few decades in U.S. history have been as dangerous, maybe, as the 1790s, but also, at the same time, uh, as rich in accomplishment as the 1790s. Timeline-wise, I just want to situate us in our context here. We are 1787 was when the Constitutional Convention was held and the, the new Constitution was drafted. Uh, it took a couple years for it to get ratified. Uh, Washington, once it was ratified, Washington became our nation's first president in 1789. The Bill of Rights was one of the first things that the Congress started working on, and then it was sent to the states to be ratified. So <clears throat> the Bill of Rights was officially ratified in 1791, and 10 amendments were added to the Constitution then. We're going to be talking a little bit about foreign policy challenges, and one of the biggest turning points for foreign affairs had to do with the French Revolution. So in 1793, that's when the French executed their king, and that's also when England and France started uh, fighting a war between the two of themselves. Washington left office, 1796 was his last year, full year in office. He, he issued a famous farewell address that year. John Adams won the election of 1796 to become the next president, and he would serve one term. And four years later, Thomas Jefferson, who ran against him in 1796, would, would win the 1800 election, and Jefferson would be the nation's third president. So that's a little bit about kind of the dates and the timeline we're going to be, uh, going, to be going through here. The first big question to wrestle with is, uh, in Washington's first term, uh, economic issues are at the forefront. And Alexander Hamilton is, is the man who receives a lot of attention for trying to come up with a plan to address some of the economic issues. At the time, in 1789, when this first Congress met for the first time, uh, they, one of the first things that they did was they created three executive departments to basically help out George Washington, the new, the new executive. So they created a foreign affairs uh, department, or essentially the, the Department of State. They created a war department and a finance department. And think of the finance department as basically the treasury department. And they required that the treasury secretary uh, report directly to Congress. So Alexander Hamilton, uh, Washington, the president, got to pick the, the heads of each of these departments that was created by Congress. So he picked Alexander Hamilton to be the treasury secretary, the, who would be in charge of the treasury department. And 10 days into his job, the House of Representatives called Hamilton to Congress and said, we need a plan uh, to deal with our economic crisis that we're in. Uh, we're, we owe almost $80 million in debt uh, because of the Revolutionary War. And so Hamilton spent a few months working out a plan for what to do. And in January of 1790, he delivered his report to Congress. It was about a 40,000-word report. And he came up with several proposals for how to deal with this uh, $80 million debt problem, or to be precise, $79 million debt problem. And he proposed uh, what we call an assumption plan and a funding at par plan and a, and a federal tariff 
Uh, and then Congress debated his plan. So Hamilton, Hamilton can't just like ma- wave a, a magic wand and make all these things happen. He has to, he has to convince Congress that this is the right thing to do. Uh, his report was pretty detailed. That's why it was so detailed. He wanted to convince Congress why they should go along with this. So eventually they did after debating it for about six months. Um, now, I say all this to, to lay out the, the, the basic fact that like Alexander Hamilton probably had the most important job in Washington's cabinet. So Washington would refer to the cabinet as like the, the people who are in charge of these various departments and, and they advise the president, they help the president. Um, so if you want to just see a quick image of like <clears throat> um, his secretary of war was Henry Knox, his secretary of state was Thomas Jefferson, his secretary of treasury was Alexander Hamilton. Uh, later, he would add an attorney general, Edmund Randolph. But at first, it's just those three guys. And between the three of them, it's very clear that the Department of Treasury is the most important department. There's 2,000 people that would work in that department. These would be people who would collect customs revenues, uh, tariffs. These would be the post office was situated in the Department of Treasury. Uh, so the, there was within the headquarters, there was 90 people working there uh, within a few years. Whereas if you look at the State Department, they had about five employees and the War Department had about three. So... <clears throat> I lay all this out to show you very clearly where the priority is. The priority is on economics in the first term for Washington's first term. That's the biggest crisis for the nation to figure out. And it's up to Hamilton to come up with a way to do that. Uh, Now, we got to introduce Alexander Hamilton here. I am going to let uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda introduce Hamilton. He He's the creator of the Hamilton musical. I'm going to play a little video here where he performs the opening song from the musical. That was the first song he, he wrote. Uh, he actually read a biography of Alexander Hamilton on a vacation once and was so inspired by it, he started writing songs. And this was the first song he wrote. He performs this song in, in, uh, in the Obama White House. So he started working on this quite a while ago. And here's that performance. I'm thrilled uh, the White House called me uh, tonight uh, because uh, I'm actually working on a hip-hop album. Uh, It's a concept album about the life of someone I think embodies hip-hop, Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. You laugh, but it's true. Um, He was was born a a penniless orphan uh, in St. Croix of illegitimate birth, um, became George Washington's right-hand man, uh, became Treasury Secretary, caught beef with every other founding father, uh, and all on the strength of his writing. I think he embodies uh, the word's ability to make a difference. Uh, So uh, I'm going to be doing the first song from that tonight. I'm accompanied by Tony and Grammy-winning music director Alex Lacamoire. Anything you need to know, I'll be playing uh, Vice President Aaron Burr, uh, and snap along if you like. (laughs) How does a bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence impoverished and squalor grow up to be a hero and a scholar the ten dollar founding father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder by being a lot smarter by being a self-starter by 14 they placed him in charge of the trade and charter and every day the slaves were being slaughtered or 
it away across the waves our hamilton kept his guard up inside he was longing for something to be a part of the brother was ready to beg steal borrow a barter and a hurricane came devastation reigned and no man saw his future drip dripping down the drain put a pencil to his temple connected it to his brain and he wrote his first refrain a testament to his pain well the word got around they said this kid is insane man took up a collection just to send him to the mainland get your education don't forget from whence you came and the world is gonna know your name what's your name man alexander hamilton his name is alexander hamilton there's a million things he hasn't done but just you wait just you wait when he was 10 his father split full of it debt ridden two years later see alex and his mother bedridden half dead sitting in their own sick the scent thick and alex got better but his mother went quick moved him with a cousin the cousin committed suicide left him with nothing but ruined pride something new inside a voice saying alex you gotta fend for yourself he started retreating and reading every treatise on the shelf there would have been nothing left to do for someone less astute he would have been dead or destitute without a cent to restitution started working clerking for his late mother's landlord trading sugar cane and rum and all the things he can't afford scamming for every book he can get his hands on planning for the future see him now as he stands on the bow of a ship headed for a new land in new york you can't be a new man the ship is in the harbor now see if you can spot him another immigrant coming up from the bottom his enemies destroyed his rep america forgot him and me i'm the damn fool that shot him alexander hamilton we were waiting in the weeds for you you could never back down you always had to speak your mind but alexander hamilton we could never take your deeds from you hang our cowardice and our shame we will try to destroy your name the world will damn genius that shot him. Thank you. So that's, <clears throat> that's a little bit of uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda there. I'm going to, I'll throw a few other links for some other songs that appear in the in the musical here when we do the video. Um, so let's get into Hamilton's plan. It pays to know a little bit about it and, and how it all worked out. So the big problem again was this all this debt. And we owed about $11 million was owed to foreign countries and foreign banks. And then the, the Articles of Confederation of the old national government still owed about uh, $42 million worth of debt. And then the states collectively had about 20 $1 million worth of debt. So Hamilton's first proposal is something called assumption. We're going to assume all state debts. We're going to pile them all together in, into one massive national debt. Uh, and then uh, we're going to not like pay that all off immediately. We're going to do it slowly. We just don't have the tax revenue to pay it all off immediately yet. Instead, what we're going to do is issue bonds or securities on the debt that people can purchase. And then they're going to get regular interest payments on that debt. 
and and that worked out. So it it uh, by assuming all of the states' war debts, it allowed the states to really uh, reduce the tax burden on their citizens. So states were able to reduce their taxes by like fifty to ninety percent. It really benefited states with huge war debts. Uh, Massachusetts, South Carolina had some pretty massive war debts. It hurt states like Virginia and Maryland and Georgia. They they were doing a good job paying down their their war debt, uh, and had gotten close to paying it all off. Uh, it had benefited a lot of speculators. Remember, there was a lot of veterans who were given like promissory notes and told that they were going to be paid uh, sometime later, and they had given up that hope and they had sold their their promissory notes to speculators. And uh, Hamilton's plan called for those notes to be paid off at full face value, which really was a huge benefit to these speculators and angered a lot of veterans who who were upset about that. So that's the assumption plan. Uh, And then how are we going to finance it? So how are we going to pay down that debt? So we need a tax revenue. And Hamilton proposed creating a a national tariff. So getting rid of all of those tariffs that the states had between each other and just creating one uh, one tariff on foreign goods. We're mainly talking about things that would need to be imported into the country here. Think sugar and coffee primarily. Those are items that are not typically produced within the United States and need to be imported. So people in the United States who are consuming those products would pay an additional tax. And then that tariff tax or custom or duty, they're all different names for the same thing, would be collected by the national government. And that would raise revenue to finance that debt. So it it was uh, it angered this plan angered some Southerners who were worried that if we create a tariff on foreign goods that foreign countries European countries would retaliate by by raising tariffs of their own on American goods and remember a lot of Southerners at this time are exporting their crops like tobacco cotton's not really huge yet so don't think cotton um, but they're worried that maybe that their their ability to sell their goods abroad would be hurt. By this trade war that they're worried that Hamilton's going to start a trade war. Um, but for Hamilton in his mind, this is the only way to pay down the debt. Uh, and he was kind of right. So a big chunk of the federal revenue in the 1790s was being used to pay off uh, the interest on the debt. And uh, it did, the government was able to collect quite a bit of revenue. $6 million of, of revenue in the 1790s was raised from this tariff, which was like 10 times more revenue than the states had ever been able to raise. Uh, the by the by, the time of the War of 1812, the customs and the tariffs and the duties were accounting for about 90% of federal government revenue. So we don't have an income tax here. This is the primary tax that the government is collecting. And even if you zoom out to the, like the end of the Civil War, it's still half of federal revenue is still coming from from tariffs. And again, it's primarily primarily like sugar and coffee. Um, all right, so the third, a third piece of Hamilton's plan was uh, to create something called a national bank. And Hamilton proposed that Congress uh, would, would draft a charter, like a 20-year charter, to create a bank of the United States. And that the federal government would uh, control about one-fifth of the capital of that bank. So it would be part public, part private. Uh, it would be the government's bank, but it would also be private individuals could invest their money in this bank. So four-fifths of the capital in this bank could come from private investors. Uh, The government would deposit all of its tax revenue in this bank, uh, and it would also use this bank to control some state banks. This bank, the Bank of the United States, would be able to issue paper money, and the the paper money issued by the official Bank of the United States could be used for tax payments, which means 
that the the people who held the paper this this paper currency was going to be trusted. It was going to be uh, by allowing it to be collected for tax payments, it would have value. Um, people would be less likely to exchange it for gold and silver, which means that it would increase the amount of money in the money supply in the U.S. economy and allow people to buy more goods and services. All right. Uh, so that like that's another positive that worked. Um, the, the downsides to the Bank of the United States, it was possible for private individuals to walk into this bank and deposit money and also request loans. But the loans that this bank was giving out were mostly short term loans, like 90 days or less. Farmers need much longer loans and, and, and riskier loans, to be honest. And they were having a hard time finding banks to give them loans. And so a lot of farmers will lobby states to create some state banks that will be more um, more loose with their with their credit and, and willing to give out credit to farmers for longer term loans. The Bank of the United States proposal, uh, another consequence of it is that it kicks off a big debate within the cabinet. James Madison and Thomas Jefferson argue that the creation of the National Bank is actually not constitutional. They interpret the Constitution very strictly. And they say, if you read Article 1, Section 8, nowhere in there does it say that Congress has the power to create a national bank. And because Congress is not given that power, they can't do it. Uh, Washington listens to their criticisms, and Washington actually turns to Hamilton and he says, would you care to respond to this? I, I need some advice. So Hamilton spends a couple days thinking of a response, and he comes up with a response and basically says, you should not interpret the Constitution loosely. You should interpret broadly. Uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. shouldn't interpret the Constitution strictly. You should interpret it loosely or broadly. And Hamilton said, if you read Article 1, Section 8, there's a clause that says that Congress, it's called the Necessary and Proper Clause. Congress can pass any law that it deems to be necessary and proper. And so it's right there. It's implied that Congress can create a national bank. And so Hamilton had uh, an implied powers interpretation of the Constitution, and, and it, he convinced Washington of that. And Washington would sign this into law after Congress passed it. The last piece of Hamilton's plan is to come up with another tax to pay down the debt, which was the excise tax. Right? An excise tax is a sales tax. So it's collected when a product is sold. And Hamilton proposed that there would be a seven cents a gallon tax put on whiskey. And he, Hamilton calculated that tariffs alone would not be enough to finance the debt. Um, there would need to be a little bit more coming in from some other revenue source. And, and this was his suggestion. Uh, at the problem, though, is that out in the West, a lot of Western farmers, because transportation was not that great, had difficulty getting their crop to market like grain. Instead, what they would do is distill it into whiskey. And so what this meant for them is that the, the tax would fall heavily on their shoulders. So this kicks off what we call the Whiskey Rebellion. In 1794, there's like thousands of angry farmers in western Pennsylvania who begin to terrorize tax collectors. They start to shut down federal courts. They march on the town of Pittsburgh, which, by the way, carries a federal arsenal. Uh, and then this starts to spread to western Virginia and Maryland. This is like the largest armed resistance to federal authority between the Constitution being written and the Civil War. This is huge. And this is one of the biggest crises for, crises for George Washington to confront. And how does he confront it? Well, he orders up 15,000 troops. That's bigger than anything that was ever um, created during the Revolutionary War to suppress this rebellion. 
the armies march down into Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania. They arrest several men, several ringleaders. They parade 20 ringleaders back to Philadelphia. Uh, they put them on trial for treason. Two of them are convicted. The resistance collapses. And because of that, Washington is rather forgiving. He pardons the men who are convicted of treason. If he hadn't have done that, they probably would have been executed. And the clear message or the lesson here that, that Washington is sending to these rebels is that this is not the Articles of Confederation anymore. You want to, you wanna, for the purposes of AP U.S. history here, you want to think about the differences between Shays Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion. So Shays Rebellion, the government was too weak to respond to it. Not the Whiskey Rebellion. The, the Whiskey Rebellion, the government had an army and the government could put down this rebellion. And the message to the rebels is, if this is a democratic Republican form of government. If you, if you don't like a law, you need to vote for new representatives uh, and use the electoral process rather than, rather than use violence. So use your freedoms, use the Republican uh, governmental process to change laws rather than using guns. So that was, that was the message of the Whiskey Rebellion. So that's the legacy of the excise tax. All right, from Hamilton's plan, Hamilton's economic plan, we start to see the seeds for the first two political parties form, the Federalist Party and the Democratic Republican Party. Now, when we're talking political parties here, these are different political parties than what we would see today. Like these political parties don't campaign, they don't have conventions, they don't have platforms, there's no committees, there's no fundraising, there's no chairman. These guys are not like running for election. Um, men stand for election. It's it's viewed as kind of like uh, ungentlemanly to 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 seek out office and campaign. Aaron Burr is widely criticized for doing this. He he kind of like ran for the vice presidency in 1792, and he was looked down upon for doing that. So the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans are they they think that the other group of people is out to destroy the country, uh, and both are reluctant. To, they, they both are hesitant, like Great Britain had political parties and nobody really wanted political parties to come into existence in the United States. So if, if you asked a Federalist, are you a member of a political party? They would often say, no, I'm not. But those other guys are. Those Democratic Republicans, they're a party because they thought of political parties as kind of a bad thing. So people were not quick to admit that they were a member of a party. What was... So when we refer to them as political parties, what was actually happening? There was a lot of there was newspapers that were becoming very clearly partisan. So there was newspapers that were that were publishing a lot of like pro Hamilton uh, articles and anti Jefferson articles, and then there would be newspapers that would publish pro Thomas Jefferson articles and anti Alexander Hamilton articles. And you started to see these societies form that would they would hold common celebrations. So there's Democratic Republican societies. Those were the ones who were participating in the Whiskey Rebellion. Um, but they would have like they would hold holiday celebrations. They would they would conduct parades and barbecues and they'd have songs and sermons and toasts and all these just celebratory activities that we started to see arise. So the Democratic Republican societies were doing that. And we started to see the rise of Federalist societies that would do that, too. And this is where we get these holidays. Uh, the Democratic Republicans, that's Jefferson's party, um, started to conduct Fourth of July celebrations because Jefferson's the author of the Declaration of Independence. And the Federalists retaliated by, by conducting holiday celebrations on Washington's birthday, which would go on to become President's Day in our calendar. So that's, where, that's the origin story of those two weird holidays. Um, but it pays to know a little bit about what were the kind of common beliefs or opinions of these two parties. So Thomas Jefferson's group, they're called the Democratic Republicans. They called themselves Republicans, but 
Hamilton and the Federalists referred to them as Democrats. That was thought to be a put down. And eventually what happens is this group just kind of embraces that 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 put down and they, they go on to eventually call them. They eventually just call themselves Democrats. So this is actually the the Democratic Party today. That's this party. Okay, it started with Thomas Jefferson, but okay, so it gets a little confusing and weird. He started he started by calling them Republicans, but eventually they're going to be called Democrats. So, to make things kind of clear, we're just going to refer to them as Democratic Republicans. Um, they don't like a strong central government. They they want they maybe want something a little stronger than the Articles of Confederation, but not anything as strong as what Hamilton was laying out. So they they they're worried that the states are losing too much power. They don't like Hamilton's loose interpretation of the Constitution. They want a strict interpretation of the Constitution. They think that the ideal citizen is not a merchant or a banker, but a farmer, a small, independent farmer, sometimes called a yeoman farmer. Uh, They think France is the number one ally for the United States, not Britain. They don't like Hamilton's plan to keep a national debt for a long period of time. They want to pay it down quick. They don't want to finance this debt and sell bonds and securities on this debt. They don't want to turn the national debt into this thing that you can invest in. They don't like Hamilton's tariff. They think that that might hurt the South. They don't like the National Bank because it doesn't benefit farmers very much. Uh, They'd rather see more state bank support. They tend to get a lot of their support from rural areas. Think like those Western Pennsylvania guys who are upset about the excise task, but also the South. Jefferson was a Southerner. He's from Virginia. Um, and their their concern is that the Federalists are going to ruin this country by pushing the country closer and closer to aristocracy and monarchy. And they often refer to Hamilton and his, his supporters as anti-Republicans. That was their put down. Hamilton and the Federalists, meanwhile, want a stronger central government. They, they do not like the strict interpretation of the Constitution. They promote a loose interpretation of the Constitution. They think the tariff is working out great. They think Britain should be the, even though we just fought a war with Britain, they're the the country's number one trade partner, and they're the most powerful navy in the world, and it would pay to get along good with Britain. They think that keeping a national debt is okay. It it, uh, allows, if if you can turn it into a financial instrument, it allows uh, Americans to find something to invest in within this country, and that way they're not investing in European um, securities and bonds. Uh, they, they like the idea of a national bank. It allows the country to have a regular uh, national currency and it allows some regulation of state banks. They end up because Washington is in office for two terms and John Adams is also a federalist for another four years. Um, they have about 12 years there where they get to appoint people to all sorts of different offices. And the judiciary, all these federal judge jobs wind up becoming pretty staunch federalists. So they dominate the judiciary for quite a while. They, uh, you can find a lot of federalist support in urban areas. And I, I should probably also add New England uh, because New England did so much trade with Great Britain, had a lot of federalist support. People who were merchants and bankers and investors and businessmen were much more likely to support the federalist cause. And they're concerned, they were a little bit concerned about democracy, about surrendering power to lower classes of people who might be uneducated. And that's, that's why they called that other group Democrats. They, they viewed that as kind of a put down. All right. They were OK with the Republican form of government, but democracy was was kind of a, a bad word for them. All right. So let's do a little exercise here. I'm going to project a quote 
and then I'll read just a key segment of it, and I want you to try to apply what you've just learned. So do you think that this quote is from a Hamiltonian, like a Federalist, or do you think it's from a Jeffersonian, like a Democratic Republican? So if we take a look at this quote here, it says, uh, the people are turbulent and changing. They seldom judge or determine right. So who would this be? Is somebody who maybe sounds a little like they don't trust the common people quite so much. The answer, that would be Alexander Hamilton. Next quote, they have a womanish attachment to France and a womanish resentment against Great Britain. So somebody that sounds like they, they kind of like Great Britain more than France, the answer would be Alexander Hamilton, Federalist. Next one, those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God. Sounds like somebody who's a big fan of farmers. That would be Thomas Jefferson. Uh, here we have an image, the visual, uh, and it has a farmer with a plow, and it has kind of like this angelic allegorical Statue of Liberty type figure behind him. And underneath it, it says, venerate the plow. Venerate means to respect. So which group would really want to like promote farmers? The answer would be Jeffersonians, Democratic Republicans. Okay, next one. Um, to designate or appoint the money or thing in which taxes are to be paid is not only a proper but a necessary exercise of the power of collecting them. So necessary and proper are used there. Who would be a fan of the necessary and proper clause? Alexander Hamilton. That's the whole loose interpretation. Necessary and proper clause is sometimes called the elastic clause because you can bend it and stretch it and it allows the federal government to do just about anything you could want it to do. Uh, how do you think we got NASA? The, the founding fathers in 1787 never thought that the government would need a space program. So when it came time to create NASA and Congress looked into the Constitution and said, where do we have the constitutional authority to create NASA? They looked at the necessary and proper clause and said it's necessary and proper to do this. All right, next quote. Mr. Jay's Treaty. Those who understand the particular articles of it condemn these articles. Jay's Treaty was a deal between the United States and Great Britain, so it was helping the U.S. and Great Britain improve their relations. So it might be somebody who doesn't like Great Britain so much. The answer, Thomas Jefferson. Okay, let's get to some foreign affairs. So the big crisis for Washington's first term was economic issues, and now let's take a look at some, some uh, foreign policy issues. We're going to look at Native Americans, how George Washington dealt with Native Americans, how he dealt with the French, how he dealt with the British. All right, so with Native Americans, um, you want to remember that this is, this is a foreign policy issue. This was an issue for the foreign... It was, we were signing treaties with Native Americans. So... There's at the time uh, in Washington's presidency, there's about 100,000 Native Americans who are living west of the Appalachian Mountains. And we started to see more and more um, settlers moving beyond the Appalachians and conflict was, uh, was increasing in that area. Um, Washington's first trip to the Senate was to get advice about a Native American treaty and diplomacy with Native Americans. The first treaty ratified by the Senate, not with a European country, but with, with the Creeks who were ceding some land uh, that today would be a big bulk of Alabama and Mississippi. That was in 1790. So, so like Native American diplomacy is at the forefront um, when we're thinking about foreign affairs here. 
Washington's hope was to avoid costly wars with Native Americans. Instead, he was hoping that there was a way to work out land deals where the U.S. would purchase land. In return, they would try to promote assimilation amongst Native Americans. And by assimilation, I mean basically making Native Americans become white, uh, to live like white people, um, so to farm like white people did, adopt laws similar to white people, and, and get on the path to, to you know what they called civilization, uh, quote-unquote there. The problem with this plan is that it was largely ignored by Westerners and largely ignored by Western states who continued to practice their own form of conquest and land incursion and create more and more conflict in this area. So the Creeks are in the southwest. Um, the, there was a lot of violence in the Northwest Territories here in Washington's presidency. One of the biggest defeats ever for the U.S. Army at the hands of Native Americans is called the Battle of Wabash in 1791. 600 U.S. troops were killed. 1,400 uh, American troops had to fall back. Massive, massive, massive defeat. You know, Custer's defeat uh, gets all sorts of attention, but this one was bigger. Uh, and it's a little known, it's a little known battle. The United States takes quite a while to retaliate. It takes three years to gather up an army to launch uh, to re a retaliatory mission. Um, and the Americans then, uh, the Battle of Fallen Timbers is kind of considered a victory. There's some, a lot of atrocities committed there. So they managed to surround a fort and then they burn all sorts of Indian villages outside of the fort. Um, so that's in 1794. That leads to the Treaty of Greenville which opens up, there's a tiny little map there in this slide, 28, page 28 here of the notes. Uh, it opens up land in Ohio and Indiana, so it allowed for the settlement of that area. But as an indication for like how much the Americans were still worried about that area, they kept 3,000 troops in that area. That's a ton of troops. So um, the leading scholar on this today is, is a, a scholar by the name of Colin Calloway. He's published a book called The Indian World of George Washington. Some excerpts of this book have been used in AP exams uh, as kind of like stimuli. So I just want to include kind of a key thesis here from Colin Calloway's book. Uh, he says that George Washington developed and articulated policies designed to divest Indians of their cultures as well as their lands, and that would shape U.S. Indian relations for more than a century. He found little to admire in Indian life. When he looked at Indian people, he saw either actual or potential enemies or allies. So Washington kind of set that precedent, is what Colin Calloway is saying, and that precedent was repeated um, by many presidencies thereafter. All right. With France, the challenge, the French are undergoing a revolution. The French have executed their king. The France and England are at war with each other. Uh, America has a, a treaty with France, a permanent foreign alliance with France, uh, and France is asking for help. Washington is trying to stay out of this war. We're a weak country. We're brand new. Washington issues a neutrality proclamation in response to this war. France has a diplomat over in the United States named Edmund Genet, sometimes called, referred to as Citizen Genet, who's stirring up all sorts of trouble within the United States. He's trying to get Americans to, to outfit French ships with guns. And, and turn American ships over to the French for use in warfare. Um, he wants Americans to, to start um, attacking Spanish and British territories, especially in the Caribbean and especially in New Orleans, which was a Spanish territory, Spanish city at the time. He's, so he's trying to recruit Americans to like launch warfare. Uh, and so he gets to be such a problem that, that George Washington basically dismisses him. Um, keep, 
kind of says you no longer get to be a French diplomat here in this country. Uh, Washington is also arguing that the, the permanent foreign alliance, the 1778 treaty that was negotiated during the Revolutionary War, where France helped us out and helped us win the Revolutionary War, that alliance should be null and void. Um, because, because while the French executed their own king, it was a treaty with their monarch, and um, the terms of the treaty in Hamilton and Washington's interpretation was that we would only assist France if they were defending themselves, but since they were attacking other countries and engaged in offensive war, we didn't need to help there. So the big hurdle for Washington is to try to stay neutral uh, with France, and, and he does that successfully. Um, and then the other big problem is, how do you stay neutral with the British? We just got out of a war with them. Uh, the British were refusing to evacuate forts in the Northwest. They were assisting Native Americans. We, we just looked at that earlier, the Battle of Wabash. Um, there was often many Americans who wanted to investigate that and see to what extent did Britain assist the Native Americans in, that, in those attacks. Um, the, meanwhile, the U.S. is trading with France, and Britain sees that as not okay. And so the British start seizing any American ship and, and capturing and kidnapping American sailors, uh, saying that we don't want you trading with the French. So there's, there's chaos, uh, especially in the oceans. There's chaos in the oceans. We, we, we rely heavily on trade with Britain, though. Three-fourths of all of our imports come from Britain, British, the British Empire. Uh, and half of all of our exports go to Great Britain. So Hamilton, the businessman, Hamilton is saying, we need to make sure we're, we're not going to go back to war with Great Britain. We need to work out a deal. John Jay is sent over to work out a deal with Great Britain, and, and he manages to work out a deal. It's called Jay's Treaty. Um, because the, the American forces at the Battle of Fallen Timbers had defeated the Native Americans in the Northwest, uh, the British basically agree to evacuate their Northwest forts. Um, they agree to continue trading with America and actually increase trade with the United States. That works out pretty well. Uh, and the British also agreed to pay for the ships that they've seized and the, and, and the sailors that they've kidnapped. That's called impressment when you kidnap sailors. But here's the problem. They don't make any promises to stop doing that. And they don't acknowledge that the United States has a right to be a neutral country and trade with France, which really angers Thomas Jefferson and, and the Democratic Republicans. So there's a massive backlash from uh, the the Jeffersonians, you can John Jay says I could I could tour the country at night uh, by just watching myself get burned in in effigy. So people would make effigies of John Jay and hang them and burn them. And Jay said there's so many of that throughout the country that it's it's like having street lights everywhere. So there's a, uh, Hamilton got stoned in New York City. People were throwing rocks at him after this treaty was was released to the public. A lot of people were worried about it. Okay, uh, a lot of people thought we were turning our backs on the French here. That's another reason why Jefferson didn't like it so much. So, uh, but another on another like positive side, it did increase trade. Exports tripled between 1792 and 1796, and Spain got a little worried. Spain was worried that we were working on a deal with the British, so they actually came to the table and worked out a deal called Pinckney's Treaty with the United States, where they uh, were. They basically gave up their claims to Mississippi and Alabama. They allowed the United States to freely navigate the Mississippi River, and they allowed the United States to use ports and warehouses in New Orleans, even though it was a Spanish city. They had, they had, they had the power, by holding New Orleans, they basically had the power to block 
all traffic in the Mississippi River and Ohio River. And if you can't use the Ohio or the Mississippi River, what good is it to live in Kentucky or Tennessee? You know, so that treaty did a lot to open up the West. All right, so I would say, you know, Jay's treaty, while unpopular, uh, it did. It was maybe the most unpopular thing that Washington did. Was if you look at it from an economic point of view, was a success. All right, so Washington then, after two terms, is incredibly burnt out and is ready to retire. And one of the weird things about George Washington is like consistently the greatest things that he ever does is retire. When when he was the general during the Revolutionary War, like the greatest thing he ever did was give up his sword and 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 kind of agree that he wasn't going to become like an Oliver Cromwell or Napoleon, that he wasn't going to become like a general dictator, right? That he would retire from being a general and, and go back to private life. And again, as a president, like the greatest thing he ever does as a president is retire. And so he serves two terms. And then a lot of people, Jefferson had expected him to just be like president for life. Like Poland had a model like that. And, and Jefferson says, or excuse me, Washington says enough's enough. I want to retire. I want to go back to my farm. I want to go back to Mount Vernon and sets a precedent from that point forward. Like there was presidents didn't serve more than two terms until we get to Franklin Roosevelt when we get to like World War Two. Right. But there, this was just a custom that, that Washington had set. So on his way out the door, uh, Washington publishes something called his farewell address. And it's really it's an important historic document. What he does, he's concerned, right? He, he's concerned about the economic fiasco and, the, and everything that's going on with foreign affairs. And so he appeals to Americans and he says, please, it looks like a lot of things are dividing you right now. Concentrate on the things that bind you together. You have common religious beliefs. You have common cultures. You have common manners. You have common beliefs and political principles. You fought a revolutionary war together. Please stay together. And the things that he sees are that are driving wedges within the United States are political parties. Remember that often these guys didn't think of themselves as members of a political party. They thought of people, other, you know, like the other guys are, are starting a political party. And he, you know, he was worried about like what the Democratic Republicans were up to. Those Democratic Republican societies were the ones that launched the Whiskey Rebellion. And, and so he's, he blamed those societies for creating jealousy, for uh, fomenting riots and insurrections. The, with, with the citizen Genet issue, Genet was, was exploiting a lot of Democratic Republican societies in Democratic Republican newspapers. So they were offering up opportunities for foreigners to influence American government and American elections. There was a French diplomat in 1796 that basically said, if Jefferson doesn't get elected, the United States and France are going to go to war with each other. I think that that's severe foreign influence in an American election. So he also expressed concern that political parties might become regional. Like what happens if one of the political parties becomes a southern only party? Might that lead to secession? Yes, like that's and that's what ended up happening uh, with the Civil War. So Washington was right to be concerned about that. What would happen if a political party didn't represent the needs and interests of people throughout the entire nation? What would happen if it just became a regional party that could create a huge problem? The other crisis that he was concerned about was permanent foreign alliances. So he was not concerned about temporary alliances. Those were beneficial to the United States, but the United States could seriously get hurt if we got into more permanent foreign alliances. And he was specifically thinking about the problems with France. And again, 
he was worried about you know the Jeffersonian Democratic Republicans and, and their their uh, ties to France there. Now, how how well did we actually listen to Washington's advice here? Did we avoid political parties? No. Did we stay out of permanent foreign alliances? Well, we got out of the French one, but if you look at World War II, at the end of World War II, the United States jumped into quite, after that war, the United States has stayed in quite a few permanent foreign alliances. The best example of one is NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which was created by a bunch of Western European countries in the United States. And it was meant to deter the Soviet Union from expanding any further into Europe. And it's been permanent. All right, so, so we didn't really listen to Washington's advice on those two things. Enter John Adams. So here comes John Adams, second president, and he has some big problems to deal with. So Washington leaves office with Jay's Treaty, which kind of calmed things down with Great Britain. But in response to that, France gets angry and France starts attacking American ships. France starts doing the exact thing Great Britain was doing. So John Adams sent over some diplomats to France to try to work out a deal. And then they're exploited. It's called the XYZ Affair. These, these American diplomats are told that they will not be allowed to negotiate until they start paying up some bribes. They needed to give this guy $250,000 and they needed to float France a $12 million loan in order to even talk about these ship seizures. And they weren't going to have it. So they came back. Uh, news of that leaked. And people got angry and people started preparing for a war with France and they put an embargo on any trade with France. And they I remember Haiti had just gotten its independence from France and they quickly recognized the independence of Haiti. Um, the government started to build up a navy and they started to permit U.S. ships to attack French ships anywhere. And they started to authorize a massive army of 50,000 people in the event of war with France. So this things were looking pretty scary. Things calmed down when the British Navy defeated the French uh, at a major battle here towards the tail end of, of Adams' presidency. So that kind of uh, calmed, calmed the issues with the French there for the, for the time. But uh, this is the downfall of John Adams' presidency is this, these laws called the Alien and Sedition Acts. So John Adams was a Federalist. The Federalists were concerned that if you looked at what was happening with the French Revolution in Europe, the French Revolution was kind of spreading through some subversive activities, sometimes called like fifth column activities. In Netherlands and Belgium, there had been activities like that. We sometimes refer to the radicals of the French Revolution as Jacobins. And you'll see that the Federalists at this time were concerned that there was like Jacobin fifth column activities happening within the United States. Very conspiratorial here. This is incredibly conspiratorial. There's not a whole lot of evidence to support these, these wild conspiracies. Um, they, they blame a lot of this on new French immigrants arriving in the country, and they also are blaming a lot of this on newspapers that were controlled by Democratic Republicans. And they were saying that these, these articles that these newspapers are publishing are creating contempt for authority. And so these Federalists in the John Adams years passed these laws. These are some of the, probably the, some of the worst laws ever passed in U.S. history. Uh, maybe some of the most unconstitutional laws passed in U.S. history. So the Alien Act, the Alien, it was called the Alien Friends Act of 1798, gave the president, John Adams, gave him the power to expel any foreigner uh, who the president judged to be dangerous. That's all he had to do. He did not have to give a reason for why they were dangerous. He did not have to have a hearing in front of a judge. He just had to say, this person's dangerous, get him out of the country 
And the Federalists, knowing that they might lose the election of 1800 and then lose power, put into the act that it would expire at the end of the year 1800, right? That's kind of your sign that they know what they're doing is not right. Um, And then the Sedition Act was perhaps even worse. This is maybe one of the biggest violations of the freedom of speech or freedom of the press in U.S. history. 1798, again, they're worried about those Republican newspapers. They make it a crime to utter or publish any false, scandalous, or malicious writing against the government of the United States with the intent to defame the government, and then here's the, here's the important part, or to bring them into contempt or disrepute or to excite against them the hatred of the people of the United States. So they could punish newspaper publishers for saying, you caused people, because you wrote something critical of John Adams, because you wrote something critical of the Federalists in Congress, you caused people to dislike or increase their contempt for the United States, and you're going to be punished. And the punishment was serious. $2,000 fine, that's a massive amount of money in 1798. Prison sentences of up to two years. Again, what do you think they did with this law? They set it to expire on the last day of John Adams' presidency, knowing that they might lose the election of 1800, which they did. There actually, there was many people punished under this law. Ten Republican journalists were punished under this law. It did backfire, though. It actually led to an increase in Republican newspapers, and and, uh, Jefferson and Madison end up anonymously drafting something called the Virginia and Kentucky Resolution. So they have the state legislatures in Virginia and Kentucky issue these resolutions. Madison and Jefferson authored them, and they put forward this idea called nullification, which is the idea that states can nullify federal laws if a federal law is unconstitutional. It would be up to the states to determine if a law is constitutional or not. So we're still wrestling with this issue of who gets to determine the constitutionality of laws. Should it be Congress? Should it be the Supreme Court? Well, here, Madison and Jefferson put out the idea that maybe it's the states that should get to decide that. Now, that idea of nullification is not going to go away. That's going to become kind of a dangerous idea that will drift and eventually become something that gets brought back up around the time of the Civil War. You have a couple maps on this slide, 35 here, that show you how close the elections were in 1796 and 1800. Adams is running against Jefferson in both elections. And you can see that Adams gets most of the votes in the north, uh, New England area, picks up a few votes in the mid-Atlantic, electoral votes here. And Jefferson's uh, support is strong in the South. But by 1800, uh, Jefferson's able to tip the scales a little bit in his favor. Now, one other thing to think about here is the three-fifths compromise. Those Southern states would not have the electoral votes they had without that three-fifths compromise. So Jefferson should be thanking that three-fifths compromise for his electoral victory. But it's also the unpopularity of the Alien and Sedition Acts that dooms John Adams. So that, you know, Adams left the presidency in a pretty upset manner. He, he felt like the greatest thing he did was avoiding war with France. And actually, he joked that that, that should be put on his grave, uh, that the fact that he kept the United States out of war with France. So that's what he thought he should be commended on. All right, just a quick reminder, the big idea here was, except for the Civil War, these years, these 1790s, were some of the most contentious years in U.S. history. So if you, if you think that the time that we're living in now is incredibly politically contentious, We don't have countries saying things like, you know, if this person gets elected, we're going to war with the United States. 
Um, th- this is some danger. <laughs> These are some dangerous years for the United States when it felt like war was coming at us from every corner, from Native Americans to the West, from Britain, from France. If, if things calmed down with one country, it felt like tensions were going to rise with the other country. So there was a lot of a lot of trepidation here. Pretty scary times for the United States. Uh, one last reminder: take a look at possible short answer questions for this, and good luck when you try those short answer questions out. So that brings topic four to an end. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna call it call it quits here for period three.